Good morning. Such a blessing to be here with all of you this morning, uh, this church family. I just really want you to know this. It's a very special place uh, in our hearts. As Pastor Jeff mentioned over six years ago, my wife Amy and I were sent out by Edgewood with a team of people from Edgewood to plant a new church in Bonnie Lake. And by God's grace and through the support of so many of you, that new church is established and growing strong. So we praise God for that. But I also know that, that a lot has happened here at EBC since we, we sent out to plant redemption. Um, and I see a lot of new faces here this morning. God is blessed in many ways, but God has also allowed some difficult trials to come into the life of this church. But as he always does, God has proven himself faithful. Amen? God has proven himself faithful. He has, he has carried you all through those trials. He has blessed you with one another. He has blessed you with faithful servants and areas of ministry and leadership. And he has blessed you with a wise and faithful pastor. So we praise God for that. But most importantly, brothers and sisters, he continues to entrust you as a church and as individuals with a message, the message that changes the world. You have, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, this treasure in earthen vessels, this treasure in jars of clay, in our human weakness, in our foolishness, in our frailty, in our sinfulness, we are, we are yet blessed to carry the most amazing truth that history has ever seen, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes, having this treasure in these earthen vessels, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but not destroyed. Because of this treasure, we do not lose and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about the glorious hope that is ours in this treasure that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you this morning about our gospel hope. However, in order to do that this morning, I want to begin by describing you, for you some scenes in which it might feel like, like hope has left the building. I want to describe for you some scenes in which it might feel like, like hope has set sail and it's, it's not coming back. And the first scene that I want you to picture in your sanctified imaginations this morning, the first scene that I want you to picture takes place on the banks of the Euphrates River near the ancient city of Babylon, and the year is 570 B.C. And there, upon the banks of that massive river running through that city that is at the heart of an empire, the Babylonian Empire, there I want you to picture a young man. And this young man, he's around 15 or 16 years of age. He has olive skin, dark hair, and there are tears in his eyes. <clears throat> he's a discouraged young man. And as he stands on the banks of that river, he, he is surrounded by women who are weeping. The young man's mother is there, as are his, his aunts, as well as several other women from their community. And they are kneeling, they are praying, they are crying. They are there, the banks of that river, they are there in mourning. 
Now, this young man understands why they are mourning, but he's too angry to join them. You see, these women are Hebrew women, and this young man too, he is a Hebrew, and these Hebrews are not in Babylon by choice. They're there by subjugation. Their homeland, Judah, has been conquered, and its capital city of Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's been razed to the ground. And everything, this isn't just a figurative, imaginative scene. This really happened. Everything that they ever owned, everything that they ever knew, it's all gone. The only life that they'd ever known had been taken from them by force. And that's why these women are weeping. They're crying out. They're crying out to God, to Yahweh, the true and living God. They're crying out to him, asking him to hear them, to answer them, to rescue them. However, this young man with olive skin and tears in his eyes, he's not joining with them in their prayers. And he's not joining with them because he understands why all of this has happened. Although he is young, he's read the prophets. He knows the law. He knows what was promised, what the warnings were, and how for generations his people broke God's law. They ignored God's warnings, and they took God's blessings for granted. He knows that all of this has happened to them as a judgment upon their sin. And that's why he's so angry. That's why he's so discouraged. That's why there are salty tears stinging his eyes. As he listens to the prayers of these women on the banks of the Euphrates, he says to himself, but we have sinned. We have sinned, and our sin has ruined our lives. Why pray? What hope do we have? What hope do we have? It's the first scene. I want you to picture a second scene. And this scene, it takes place long before that scene of the young man in Babylon. And in this scene, I want you to picture another weeping woman. And she, too, is weeping because she's lost her home, her place. She's lost everything. And this woman that I want you to picture, she is beautiful. But she has such sad eyes. And she's also wearing some pretty strange clothing. You see, this woman is wearing animal skins, freshly killed animal skins, and the stink of death is upon her. And she's actually weeping because of death. She's weeping because of her death. Because of the sentence of death that now is upon her now that she has been exiled east of Eden. You see, I want you to picture Eve, the first woman. And I want you to try to picture her not long after those sad, tragic, world-transforming events that are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. There she is, picture her. She's covered in animal skins. She's exiled from paradise. And she's weeping over the reality of all of it. And here's the thing. We have all known to varying degrees that feeling of failure, right? We've all known that feeling of failure. But can you imagine her feeling of failure? I mean, think about it. Think about it. She had known paradise. She had walked with God. She had lived in a world where everything was as it should be. But then she had thought she could make it just a little bit better. 
She thought that by going her own way, she could improve upon her situation. And so she rested in her own wisdom and she reached out for something greater. But the foolishness of her actions were only matched by the severity of our fall. I wonder, I mean, again, real person, really happened. I wonder how many times she thought to herself, I have ruined everything. I've ruined my life. Oh, there would be children, but then one son would murder another. And she'd watch her husband daily, broken by the labor in which she used to find his delight. And she'd know frustration with him and anger at him and bitterness towards him. Or once they'd only known delight and harmony in their relationship with one another. And, and she understood. She understood why it all changed. She knew the reason for the pain, the reason for the sorrow, the reason for her weeping. It was all because of sin. Their sin. Her sin. And so as you picture her weeping east of Eden, I want you to hear her say, our sin, my sin, has ruined our lives. What hope do we have? What hope can I have? What hope can I have? I want you to picture a third scene. And in this third scene, I want you to picture a home in any town in the USA. So imagine a modern home somewhere in modern America, however your imagination fleshes that out. And in this home, I want you to picture a man sitting at his kitchen table. And this man is an older man. He has thinning silver hair and he has deep lines in his face. And running through those deep lines are, are tears. He too is weeping. And the reason for his weeping is crumpled up in his hands. You see, this older man sitting at his kitchen table in his home in any town USA has just received a letter from his son. And it's the type of letter that no one would ever want to receive. It's a letter filled with anger, with bitterness, with hatred. And in that letter, this son details the struggles that he's had with his own marriage. The son's wife is threatening divorce. The struggles he's had with his own children. His, his oldest daughter is in rehab. He details the struggles he's having just with life itself. And that son in this letter to his father, he writes, I don't know how to go on. And I blame you. Well, as the old man reads and rereads those words, he doesn't push back. He doesn't fight back. He knows they're deserved. He knows he's failed. He's failed his son. He's failed his whole family. He's treated them. He's treated his marriage and his children like they were just there for him to be used and abused and then tossed aside. So as he sits at that table, that crumpled letter in his hands and tears streaming down his face, he says to himself, I failed. I failed. My sins have ruined our lives. What hope is there for me? What hope is there for us? What hope is there? That's an important question. That's a 
crucially important question. When sin has ruined our lives, what hope do we have? And I say that this is a crucially important question because since those days of Eve's despair, since Genesis chapter 3, sin has ruined all of our lives. Amen? Sin has ruined all of our lives. We're all born east of Eden. We are all born fallen people into a fallen world. Sinners living in our sin. Sinners living in the consequences of our sin. And the consequences are there, brothers and sisters, as that young man with all of skin observed. The consequences are there as judgment. They are there as judgment. Righteous judgment that we deserve because we're all rebels against the throne of heaven. And the consequences are there as Eve powerfully understood because of what we've done. They are the consequences of our actions. And the consequences haven't just landed upon our own heads. As that elderly father came to understand, the consequences have affected those around us, those we love, our spouse, children, our neighbors, our fellow church members. The reality is that our sin has ruined our lives. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have? That's such an important question. So this morning, I want to answer that question. And here's the thing. I want to do so through a song. Don't worry. I'm not going to sing a song for you this morning. So we're going to study a song together. And we're going to study a song that points us to the hope for humanity, the hope for broken sinners at their kitchen table, the hope for broken sinners discouraged on the banks of the Euphrates, the hope for broken sinners weeping east of Eden, broken sinners like you and me. The song that we're going to study this morning is the song of our hope, hope for sinners. So let me introduce this song to you. Take your Bibles now, if you haven't done so already, and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. And as you're turning there, let me just tell you that this song that we're going to look at this morning, this poetic, prophetic word of the Lord through Isaiah, it would have been a very familiar song to those folks on the banks of the Euphrates. It would have been a familiar song to the exiled Hebrews living in Babylon. Here's the thing, though. Although it would have been a familiar song to them, it wasn't a contemporary song. Instead, it was actually written a while before their time. Isaiah the prophet lived and ministered 150 years before the Babylonian invasion and conquering of Jerusalem. Actually, much of the second half of this massive prophetic book deals with words and encouragement and charges for those exiles living in Babylon. Now that said, although much of this book addresses those in exile, um, and I think you know this, it wasn't just written for them. It wasn't just written for them. It's written for all of us. It's written for all of us. Some 2,700 years after the time of Isaiah the prophet, this message that God communicated to him, specifically the song that we're going to look at this morning, has powerful ramifications for all of us here today. This song written so long ago is the song of our hope. Not just the exile's hope, our hope. And in this song that we find here in Isaiah 53, we read about the actions of a servant. The actions of a servant. The servant of the Lord. And this is the fourth time that Isaiah has mentioned this servant in his book. He's talked about the servant in chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50. But now here, 
Isaiah comes to his, his climactic servant song. Here, all of, of the previous themes that he's mentioned, all the things he's hinted at before, it all finds his fullest and ultimate expression in this fourth and final servant song. Here, Isaiah is going to give us a picture of one who will come and be the deliverer. The deliverer of God's people and beyond that, the deliverer of the nations. So, so now let's dig into this song. And actually, this song doesn't begin in chapter 53. It actually starts at the end of chapter 52. It begins in verse 13 of chapter 52. And sometimes you have to wonder if whoever added the chapter and verse markers to our Bibles, because you know that's not part of the inspired text. Those were added later. You have to wonder if they were actually tracking along with the text. Because if they were, chapter 53 would actually begin back in chapter 52, verse 13, because that's where the song begins. And here in the opening stanza of this song, starting in verse 52, or chapter 52, verse 13, we find what I'll call hope through an astonishing triumph. The opening stanza of this song, hope through an astonishing triumph. Look at what Isaiah writes. Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant, the servant of the Lord, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, astonished because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. But as many as were astonished at you, so shall he sprinkle many, many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Here, this song opens with, with a promise of success. That's what that phrase, shall act wisely, means. Isaiah here is, is using a term that refers to knowing exactly what to do in a given situation so as to bring about the intended results. You know exactly what to do to get what you want. You know exactly what to do to bring about the intended results. And that's what the servant of the Lord will do. He will act in such a way that he will accomplish the plan. He will succeed. But this successful servant is going to be different. He's going to be astonishingly different. And we see that in the way that Isaiah describes him here. Look at the text. In the second half of verse 13, Isaiah uses divine language to describe this servant. Look at what he says. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now you need to understand this. Normally when the Bible uses that kind of language, and always when Isaiah uses that kind of language, it is used to describe God himself. God himself is the one who is high and lifted up and exalted. But having said that, here it is being used to describe someone who in the very next line, look at the text, Isaiah says in the very next line, he's grotesque. He says in verse 14, and many will be astonished at this servant. And here you need to understand that Isaiah is actually using a term that can mean shock. ESV brings it across as astonished, but it can mean shocked. If you have a new, Ameri or new, new International Version, you see it translates it as appalled. The New English Translation brings the term across as horrified. You see, when people look at the servant, they won't see someone amazing and beautiful. Instead, they will see one whose appearance, look at verse 14, was so marred beyond human semblance and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. They will see one who is shocking and horrifying and grotesque 
and astonishing in a negative way. But this servant, who many will view as astonishing in a negative way, is going to do something astonishingly positive. He's going to cleanse the nations. He's going to cleanse the nations. There in verse 15, that phrase, sprinkle many nations, that phrase uses a term that's used repeatedly in the Old Testament. It's associated with the Old Testament priesthood. You see, sprinkle translates a religious term that was used when the priest would sprinkle blood on the altar in order to make atonement for the sins of the people. And here that same term is being taken up and used of this servant and the nations. He is being described as cleansing, as sprinkling, as removing the sin and guilt of the nations. You know the condition of our world. You see it, right? Removing the sin and guilt of the nations. And doing that work is going to leave everyone dumbfounded. Kings, the great rulers of the world are going to look at verse 15. They're going to shut their mouths because of them. They're not going to know what to say. Because he's going to do what they never thought possible, what they, they never seen before, what they never even heard rumors about before. He's coming, this servant, on a mission of great deliverance and hope. And again, he's going to triumph. He's going to triumph. Again, the text tells us he's going to act, act wisely. He's going to have success. Even though at times he might look appalling, he's going to be high and lifted up, cleansing the nation. That's how this song opens. It kind of throws down the gauntlet at the beginning. This, this astonishing triumph. That's how this song opens. But then Isaiah goes on to tell us so much more. Look at the text. He shows us hope not just through astonishing triumph, but hope through an unbelievable person. Look now at the opening words of chapter 53. Isaiah starts his second stanza by telling us that, that this message about this servant who in the world is going to believe this? He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This unbelievable message, this hope and deliverance for the nation. Who's going to believe it? And he goes on here to tell us that this message is about the arm of the Lord. Now, I want to tell you, here Isaiah is doing something that he hasn't done yet in 52 chapters of this book. Now, he's already spoken about the arm of the Lord, which is, is a metaphor for God coming in power to deliver his people. He's already spoken about the arm of the Lord repeatedly, but here, for the first time, he associates the arm of the Lord with this servant. And he's making this connection. This servant is actually the arm of the Lord. He is God coming in power to deliver his people. But this one who is God coming in power to deliver his people, he doesn't look very divine. In verse 2, look at the text. Isaiah says, For he, this servant, grew up before him, before Yahweh, the true and living God, like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. This is a very poetic way of just describing that this, this servant, he's going to grow up like everybody else. He's going to grow up in a difficult place, like, like a root out of dry ground. And this verse continues, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. This, this servant, this divine arm of the Lord, he isn't going to be very impressive, at least to look at. 
He's not going to look, when you see him, he's not going to look like a great conquering hero. He's not going to look like a majestic king. He's not going to look like some noble prince. And so Isaiah's song predicts that, that the people, his own people, Isaiah's people, when they see him, they're going to reject this servant. Verse 3, look at it. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah says, the servant's going to come and we're not going to get it. We're not going to get it. We're going to look at him and we're going to say, well, no, that, that can't possibly be the one. He's not the one. God's not working through that one. God's not working through him. He's not going to look anything like we'd expect the arm of the Lord to look. So Isaiah says, we're going to reject this unbelievable person. We're not going to esteem him as God's way of deliverance and hope. However, even though the people will miss it, huh, deliverance and hope is exactly what this servant, this unbelievable person is going to bring. But here's the thing. He's going to bring this deliverance and hope through, through a very surprising means. When we come here to verses 4 through 6 of this song, uh, the third stanza of the song, coming to maybe the more, most familiar part of this text, we're also coming to the heart of this song. And the heart of this song is so surprising, so shocking, that several people, several scholars argue that it can't possibly be teaching what it appears to be teaching. But I'm so glad those people are wrong. Because the heart of Isaiah's service, servant song is teaching exactly what it appears to be teaching. It's teaching that this servant will suffer for others. The servant will suffer for others. It's teaching hope through a surprising suffering. That's the focus of the third stanza. Hope through a surprising suffering. Surely, verse 4 says, look at the text. Surely he has borne, what does it say? His own griefs? What does it say? I, I tell the folks at Redemption, it's okay to talk back. He's borne our griefs. Carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See here in the third stanza, in the heart of this song, Isaiah describes a suffering, a surprising and yet almost confusing suffering. He says, again, when we see it, we won't get it. We won't get it. We're going to esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In other words, we're going to think that whatever he's getting, he deserves it. But he's not the one who deserves it, is he? He's not the one. Who is the ones who deserve it? That's what's truly happening. Surely, Isaiah says. In other words, this is without a doubt real and true. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's suffering for us. 
He's suffering to deal with our sin and the ramifications of it. And just look at the language that Isaiah uses here. He uses all kinds of graphic language, all kinds of sin language. Look at the language. He talks about grief and sorrows. He talks about transgressions and iniquities. And in verse 6 he says, All we like sheep have got our act together. <laughs> Gone astray. We have turned everyone where? To his own way. And what he's describing there is the deep reality of sin. Sin is a breaking, a transgressing of God's law. It is iniquity, is that which brings guilt and judgment. Sin is cosmic rebellion. It's turning from the God of the universe, the true sovereign, in order to play the pseudo-sovereigns over our own life. It's going our own way. Thank you very much, God. I know what you say, but I want to do my own thing. It was the path of Adam and Eve in the garden, and how'd that work out for them? How'd that work out for all of us? It's the path that every single one of us has been going down since Genesis chapter 3. We've all been guilty of transgressions and iniquity. And like foolish, stupid sheep, we have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But here in such shocking detail, Isaiah says that God will lay all of that guilt, all of that sorrow, all of that judgment, all of that iniquity upon the servant. The servant is the one who's going to be pierced. The servant is the one who's going to be crushed. The servant is the one who's going to be wounded. The servant is the one upon whom the chastisement will fall. He's going to take all of that which Isaiah says we deserve. He's going to suffer vicariously. Vicariously, that is, in our place. He's going to suffer for our guilt so that we don't have to. So that we don't have to. This servant is going to be the vicarious, atoning sacrifice for sin. That's what the heart of Isaiah's song is teaching. This servant, not just going to be some amazing person, but he's going to be the vicarious, atoning sacrifice for our sin. And then Isaiah goes on to describe what being that sacrifice will be like. Look at the text. In verses 7 to 9, fourth stanza of this song, Isaiah describes hope through a shocking death. Hope through a shocking death, the, the servant's death. And, and he begins by telling us that it will be a willing death. In verse 7 we read, look at this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Let me ask you a question. When you were oppressed and you were afflicted, what do you do? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. We get upset if someone says some bad things about us. But like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He's not going to fight back. He's not going to try to defend himself. He's not going to offer a list of reasons why it should be somebody else doing this. No, he's going to go willingly. And the death that he's going to go willingly to is not going to be an easy one. Instead, it's going to be a very oppressive death. 
Look at verse eight. Verse eight says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Several commentators suggest that that line has to do with injustice, with being victimized by a judicial procedure. That's why the New English translation brings this line across as he was led away after an unjust trial. And the New Living Translation renders it unjustly condemned. He was led away. Isaiah is describing this servant's death as a victimization. Shouldn't have happened. There was injustice in it. It was a victimization, but it was one that he went to willingly. And here's the great irony that Isaiah points out. No one's going to seem to care, even though the death was for them. No one's going to seem to care. Verse 8 continues, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off or, or violently removed. That's not the way to translate that. Out of the land of the living stricken for the transgressions of my people. Isaiah is saying, his generation, those who see him suffering this unjust, oppressive death, they won't even care. Don't even take time to consider what's going on, even though he's being stricken for their transgressions. And Isaiah adds here to this, this picture of this willing, oppressive, unjust, ironic death. He adds to the picture by describing a surprising burial. Isaiah predicts that they will, verse 9, make his grave, make the servant's grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Again, Isaiah shows us this one, the suffering servant, that he will be identified with the wicked even though he's done nothing to deserve it. He's an innocent man. He has been, not been violent. He's not been dece deceitful but he's going to be placed with those who are. And what's interesting here in this section is that Isaiah includes the rich in this description. And at first glance, as you read through that, it seems a little out of place in the midst of all of this, this ugliness with the wicked and deceptive and violent and all of that. Think, well, maybe being buried with the rich, that's like a positive thing. That's a place of honor. But here's the thing. Not from the viewpoint of the Old Testament prophets. You see, in their writings, they often condemn the rich. The rich are often those who oppress the poor, those who do violence, those who gain through deceit. And so in this last section of this fourth stanza, both of those terms, the wicked and the rich, they go hand in hand. They parallel each other. You see, this one who dies this ironic death, dying for people who don't seem to care, is going to be buried the same way. He's going to be buried with the wealthy, wicked oppressors who most likely caused his death. That's the picture we're being shown here. This fourth stanza shows us the shocking death of this suffering servant. But praise God, the song doesn't end at the fourth stanza. It doesn't end with the death of the servant. However, before we do look at how it ends and wrap all this up this morning, I want to pause for a moment in order to answer a very important question. Here's a question. As Isaiah writes this servant's song, this fourth and final servant song in his prophetic book, answer this question with me in your head. Who is Isaiah talking about? Who is this servant? Now, I bring up this question because some have suggested that is the nation of Israel itself. And if you were to go and talk to a modern Jewish Orthodox rabbi, that's probably what he'd tell you. Oh, the servant, Isaiah 53? That's the nation of Israel. However, the problem with that understanding of the song seems to miss, 
miss a major point. That understanding seems to miss a major point. You see, the servant is suffering for the people. He's suffering in the place of the people. The servant, a, a singular individual through this entire song, is suffering for Israel, for those Isaiah identifies with the pronouns we and our and us. So, if the servant is the people, this song doesn't make much sense at all. Doesn't make much sense at all. And so that has led people to wonder if Isaiah is describing a person, such as one of his contemporaries, maybe a king, maybe a world leader, or even the prophet himself. But no one has been found from Isaiah's day or from the time of the, the Babylonian exile who matches up with the words of this song we've been looking at this morning. Not even Isaiah himself, who was, was pretty familiar with suffering. So who is this servant? Well, let's answer that question by, by listening just for a moment to the story of someone else who asked the very same question. Over in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, in chapter 8, verses 26 through 35, we read this. Just listen, you don't have to turn there. You can jot that reference down. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 35, we read this. Luke tells us. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Philip who was a Christian in the early church, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Then Luke adds this as a desert place. And so Philip rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. So this Ethiopian is a pretty impressive guy. He's in charge of all the treasures of this queen. And this Ethiopian, Luke tells us, had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was, re was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading, listen to this, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture, Luke tells us, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And that was the Greek translation of the Hebrew of Isaiah 53. That's what the Ethiopian was reading. And the eunuch said to Philip, listen to this, this is what Luke tells us. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Sounds like our question, doesn't it? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about who? About Jesus. Then beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You see, Jesus is the suffering servant. This scripture we've been working through this morning, it's all about Jesus. And that wasn't just a point made by Philip to the Ethiopian. It's a point made repeatedly through the New Testament. This passage that we've been looking at this morning is quoted and alluded to by the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle Peter, by the Apostle John, by John the Baptist, and even by Jesus himself. Repeatedly, the New Testament makes this point that the suffering servant is Jesus Christ. And so what this song shows us then is that Jesus is the hope 
for sinners like us. Jesus is the hope for sinners like us. And here's the thing. Some 700 years before the birth of Jesus, 700 years before, Isaiah gave us this song to show Israel and all the nations that God would act to save fallen and sinful people from judgment through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene, Isaiah gives this song to show Israel and the nations that God would act, God would act to save fallen and sinful people from judgment through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that point is made abundantly clear in the final stanza of this song. Let's finish this song out now. Here we see hope through the divine plan. Hope through the divine plan. Again, we've already seen this song open with the promise of triumph. Isaiah predicted that Jesus would, would be exalted and lifted up. He would cleanse the nations. He would act wisely. He would cleanse the nations, but he would do so by enduring shocking suffering to accomplish it. Isaiah has told us that he was going to be, Jesus is going to be like no one else. He would be the divine arm of the Lord, God come in power to deliver, but at the same time merely human, just a shoot grown up out of dry ground. And he wouldn't look like anybody expected, no form or no majesty, and so he would be rejected. And he would suffer, Isaiah has told us, going willingly to his death. A death, and we read it in the Gospels, a death at the hands of unjust men, a death that his generation seemed unsympathetic to, a death with the wicked, and then burial in the tomb of, a rich, of the rich. And all that, everything that Isaiah said in the song, it's all true of Jesus. But all of that happened, not by chance, not because God is reactionary. All of that happened, Isaiah here goes on to tell us, because it was the plan of God. Look at how this final stanza opens, verse 10. Yet it was what? The will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, Yahweh, has put him to grief. Again, it wasn't, wasn't chance. It wasn't reactionary. It was all the will of our sovereign, holy creator, God. For God the Son to take upon himself our humanity and to suffer all of these things for us to deliver his people and to cleanse the nations. Cleanse the nations. Why is that so important? Who are the nations? Raise your hand if you're a Gentile. Where are the nations? To cleanse the nations. It was all the plan of God. And verse 10 tells us that Jesus was an offering for our guilt. Here's the thing, that, that offering wasn't the end. Oh, it was the end of our guilt, praise God. But it was not the end of Jesus. Look at what Isaiah says. When his soul, when the servant's soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see, death's not going to be the end of the servant. After making this offering for guilt, after enduring the wrath of God upon our sin, after enduring that on the cross, after dying between two thieves, after being buried in the rich man's tomb, on the third day, what happened? Yeah, we serve a risen Savior, amen? On the third day, he rose again. The Lord prolonged his days. And Jesus became, as the book of Colossians declares, the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus became the pioneer of the resurrection. 
And he is the one who will one day see the resurrection of all of his offspring. He will see the resurrection of all of his offspring, all of those who embrace him by faith. As verse 11 says, out of the anguish of his soul, and I love this part, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He shall see and be satisfied. Or as the author of Hebrews expresses it, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated where? At the right hand of the throne of God. See, Isaiah's song promises that the mission will be accomplished. Jesus will see and be hopeful that we put the pieces together. <laughs> he will see and be satisfied. He will see and be satisfied. And he will be satisfied because he will understand, he will know this is the plan. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he transforms our lives. He transforms our lives. You see, all those who are united to this servant by faith will have their lives radically transformed. Sin will not be the end of their story. Praise God. All those who are united to the servant by faith will have their lives radically transformed. Sin will not be the end of their story. Again, look at verse 11. This is the glorious result of what Jesus has accomplished. Look at the text. Isaiah says, by his knowledge, and what that's describing is Jesus' experiential knowledge of bearing guilt and sin, knowledge there parallels the anguish of the soul from the previous line. So it's his experience of death and judgment. But Isaiah says, by his knowledge, his experiential knowledge of bearing our, our, the guilt of our sin, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, look at this, make many to be what? Accounted righteous. What's another word for that? Those of you who are theologians here this morning, justified, right? Justified. Make many to be accounted righteous. Justified, declared righteous, able to stand, you know, for sinners, able to stand in God's holy presence. Why? Because we finally got our act together? No. Look at the text. Because he shall bear their iniquities. You see, Jesus is death. His death is the grounds, the means, the only means for our justification, for having all our sin wiped away. Past, present, future. And the good news is that we receive that gift, justification, not by working hard, not by checking off all the religious boxes, not by following a bunch of religious rules, but we receive that gift of justification, how? By faith. Paul says, Romans chapter three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's everything that we've seen here in Isaiah 53. A propitiation by his blood. Paul says, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Faith. We who are sinners, rightly under judgment, are saved, are justified, are declared righteous before holy God through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of this suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, all who are justified, they will be gloriously blessed. Sin will not be the end of our story. Verse 12, look at the text. Therefore, God says, I will divide him a portion and inheritance with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, 
And what that's speaking of there is it's speaking of every Christian. Though we are weak, the servant will make us strong. And he will bless us with the riches of his glorious inheritance. What that means, brothers and sisters, is everything that is his comes to us. Isn't that amazing? Everything that is his, everything that belongs to Jesus comes to us. Why? Because we deserve it? Because we're the smartest, we're the best. Why? Because we deserve it? No, not at all. Because of what it says here in the song's final lines. Look at it. Why does it come to us? Because he poured out, he the servant, poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, our lives... Our lives are radically transformed. We are justified, we are blessed, we are given a future and an inheritance. Not because of things we do, but because Jesus has removed the guilt of our sin and he lives to make intercession for us. Our sin, praise God, is not the end of the story. Our sin is not the end of the story. And that's why we have hope. That's why we have hope. We have hope because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. You see, Isaiah's song says to the hopeless, weeping on the banks of the Euphrates, and to the devastated east of Eden, and to the broken sitting at their kitchen table, sin is not the end of your story. Your life is not ruined. There is hope. And that hope is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, that discouraged young man on the banks of the Euphrates can cling to the truth that the exile is not the end of God's people, that a new exodus is coming, and that Messiah's salvation will be far more glorious than he ever imagined. And Eve, weeping east of Eden, can know that her seed will come and he will crush the head of the serpent and one day everything that sin ruined will be redeemed. The world will again be as it should be and it will be even better, amen? Because of Jesus. And for that broken father sitting at his kitchen table and for anyone here this morning who feels overwhelmed and discouraged and despairing because of sin. Isaiah's song says to you that that feeling is not the end of the story. That feeling is not the end of the story. You can know, you can know the joy of forgiveness. You can know what it is to be clean, what it is to be shown mercy, what it is to be given grace, what it is to have a real and abiding hope that does not rest in you but rest in your Savior. You can know what it is to be free from the burden of sin now and forever because a suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah, took upon himself your judgment, took upon himself the consequences of your actions. He took upon himself the shame of your failure, and he dealt with all of it. He dealt with all of it. When sin has ruined our lives, what hope do we have? We have Jesus. We have his gospel. We have the treasure of true forgiveness and the declaration that our sin and failure, praise God, is not the end of our story. Praise God for our Savior. Praise God for the hope 
of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for giving us the opportunity today to be together in this place. And I know, I know myself, uh, so imagine the way it is for so many here. It's really easy for us to grow uh, accustomed to hearing these things. Our hearts to grow callous towards these things. Our minds to downplay the reality of our sin, the reality of eternal judgment, the reality of the condition that we were in apart from Christ. So, Father, we come to you and we ask that your spirit would take the word of God and do the work that only he can do upon our hearts. Humble our hearts. Help us to glory in our Savior. Help us to see the, the amazing, glorious, mind-boggling rescue that is the gospel. And I pray, I pray for those who are in those places of discouragement, despair, wrestling with sin, feeling beat down by sin, feeling, looking back over their life, feeling discouraged by, by what has happened. I pray that you would bring their hearts back to the simplicity, the beauty, the glory of the gospel. And through your Holy Spirit, just declare to them, sin, our sin is not the end of the story. We can enjoy fellowship with you. We can come boldly into your presence. We can receive grace and mercy. We can know your love. We can be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So many gifts and blessings are ours. Through faith in Jesus Christ. So I pray, I pray that you would awaken our hearts, challenge our hearts, Stir up our hearts to the glory of what is ours in Christ. Let's not grow discouraged. Let us not grow discouraged because of sin. But let us live triumphant because of the gospel. Help us to see the hope of the gospel. These things I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.